Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue our journey in the art of living in season two. And hand in hand, as usual, with Iona, the digital healthcare company that I founded with a number of colleagues to deliver the right information to patients at the right time to improve outcomes so people can live a longer, healthier life. And in collaboration with my lovely colleagues at Cambridge University, Homerton Changemakers Programme. Now, today, I have a very, very dear close and special friend. I've known her for nearly two decades. Our children started off in the nursery at school together. And you know, when you meet somebody first day in the nursery, you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes in that person's life or how much richness they have to offer the world. But it's over the last 20 years that I've really got to know this very special lady. There's so many sides to her and we're going to discuss them today. She's a beautiful person, I can attest to that. She's the mother of two stunning children. She's the wife of a very, very prominent army recently appointed general. What an achievement. Not only that, she's an entrepreneur in her own right, having exited her own business and a designer with a creative energy to die for. She's sadly been diagnosed with cancer and she is her whole person despite this diagnosis. And I think this is going to be a very interesting, inspirational and heart rendering story to listen to. This person is not defined by her illness, by the fact that she's an army wife, by the fact that she's a mother. She is her own authentic self. And today we're going to discover, we're going to find this authentic self and give her her voice. So join me in a very warm welcome of my lovely dear friend, Sarah Stenning. Sarah, welcome. Thank you, Millie. That is probably the best introduction I've ever been given. (laughs) <laughs> well, it came from the heart because it was ad-libbed because that's exactly how I feel about you, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much. That means that means so much to me. Um, so thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, we've had many discussions over the last 20 years or so, but more so recently. And we've had discussions on the meaning of life and what it is to be sick and what it is to be a mother. But I thought we'd start off today and I'm going to ask you a very deep question. And, you know, how do you define yourself, Sarah? I've given an overview of all the facets to you that I see as an observer, but I'd be interested to know how you define yourself. And then we're going to take you on a little whistle stop journey around all of those facets and see what we come up at the end of this conversation. Wow, that is that is a question and a half. I think, I think wherever you are in your life, whether you're an adolescent, whether you're a young adult, an older adult, or a middle-aged adult, as I am now, I think the facets of your life vary depending on where you're at. And I think if you ask me that this question right now, right here, right now, the most important part of of Sarah is her connection with her family and her friends. And I cannot probably emphasize that enough. Had you asked me five or 10 years ago what that would be, it would be probably army wife because I had a real role to play at that time. And then if you take me back further again, not that that much further, but maybe 10, 15 years it would have been as a new mum. I had a baby quite late in life, my second son quite late in life. And so if you ask me at any one time what what Sarah is and the essence of Sarah, it would change probably depending on what part of my life you were asking me about at that particular time. 
I think that's very, very pertinent and on point, Sarah, because if you have life changing events and we all do, you know, you don't have to have cancer or have a bereavement or change job or have a divorce to have, you know, a moment where one changes direction and have an event that changes one. And you've had quite a few of those life events. So why don't we start then? Because it is a question that one can't really answer in one sentence. So let's explore it a little bit, because the purpose of this podcast is to discover you know, where is Sarah and who is Sarah and where is the authentic Sarah in all of this journey and to bring her out to the fore. Mm-hmm. So let's start with motherhood, because personally, I think that's a, a defining thing for any woman, mother um, father to have a child. And we're very fortunate to have children of the same age. And you mentioned that you've had a child quite late in life. How did that come about? Did you have a second marriage or... What happened? Yes, yes, I did. I married my um, second husband at the age of 40, never thinking actually that I would get married again. Actually, really didn't think I'd have a baby after 40. But lo and behold, life has a, a special way of um, bringing magic into your life. And I met my husband, um, Zach, very fortuitously and very surprisingly on a train, Um We'd both had meetings in London and as is one with getting back home after a long, long day, there was a problem with trains coming back to the West Country and it was a lovely summer's day. I remember it very vividly actually because it was my father's birthday and the sun was shining and after a a big meeting, I just wanted to get home and sit in the garden with a chilled glass of wine and yet all the trains were cancelled. Eventually, we did get a train Um, me and my colleagues, and we sat diagonally opposite um, a young man. And we all started talking because we all just wanted to get home and it had been a bit of a bit of a pain. So we started chatting, who is now my husband, diagonally across the aisle of a train. And when he got off to leave the train at Swindon, my work colleague ran after him with my business card. Um, And I didn't even know his name at the time. And I have to say, I was pretty embarrassed. But long story short, it ended that we met after a wee while and um, the rest is history, really. And we got married. That's a lovely story. So I had a baby late in life. I was aged 42. I didn't know whether I'd be able to have a baby quite so easily. And um, I was very fortunate, fell pregnant very easily. And along came Seb. Mm. who is now 13 years old. Wow. And his older brother is 20, correct? Yes, he'll he'll be 21 in January. Oh, wow. And an extremely good friend of your daughter. And they've been through school together since nursery right up to upper six. And um, it was only the other day that your daughter was in our house chatting away to my son. And they are like brother and sister. It is so lovely to see. Well, Alice would say the same about Max. That's so lovely, isn't it? So two children married late in life, having had a divorce. The divorce must have been, was was your divorce traumatic? Do you mind me asking? It was actually. Um, yes, it was very traumatic and it, it was quite a difficult marriage. I'm very good friends with my ex-husband now and he's an excellent father. But the marriage was not a happy one and it ended quite sadly, really. Um, And it happened as Max was born. So he was a new baby when our marriage ended. And unfortunately, after quite a difficult 
relationship and and marriage to my first husband. He was diagnosed with throat cancer when I was nearly due to give birth to Max. And I thought, gosh, we've been through so much together and I'm now going to be widowed. He went through horrendous treatment for his cancer. And luckily, he survived. And it's nearly 21 years later, and he's still going strong. So that is a blessing. But actually, it forced our marriage to end. I don't have any regrets for that at all. We have a super relationship. Max has a super relationship with his father. And, and actually, the two families all get on very well, which is a blessing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting your point that the marriage was came to abrupt end and that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back because many patients when they suffer cancer, if the relationships are strong and the foundations are rock solid, as you said, that they probably weren't in yours, it survives. And I can say this because similar happened to me. But if the relationship isn't rock solid, cancer can break families apart. But it is a great testament to you and your strength of character that now you call your ex-husband your friend. And that's wonderful. Mm. And you had a second chance and fate stepped in that day on the train and brought you another lovely man into your life. Yes, Father. yes it did. It did. And you in turn have done an amazing job because I don't know much about it personally, but being an army wife is no mean feat. And when you met Zach first, I, I gather he may have been reasonably junior in his station, but he has risen and you, hopefully you'll tell us that little story about all that happened to his career. And, and you've obviously played a big part in that as an army wife. Yes, I have to say I was completely naive about the army. And the day that I met Zach on the train, I didn't know he was in the army. He was incredibly uh, private about that. And I think understandably, knowing now what they do, it wasn't something that you kind of broadcast in public. So I didn't know he was in the army when we met. But obviously, I've got to know the army a great deal more. I was very naive at the start. I didn't understand the rank system. I didn't understand how it all worked. So I didn't go into it with a great deal of knowledge. But you don't choose who you fall in love with. And obviously, with the army comes a great deal of separation. And when we met in 2003 stroke four, Zach had spent a lot of time overseas already. And we were in the midst of the Iraq and latterly the Afghan wars. And, and Zach did a number of tours, long tours and very hard tours. But the one that I'm probably going to share with you is the one in 2012 when we moved to the battalion and I supported him as he took his battalion to Afghanistan. And I felt a great sense of purpose. And I was very honoured that I was able to do it. What I did is I lived amongst the, the soldiers and officers' wives um, while the battalion went away for six months. And they were actually in Afghanistan for six months. But what you don't probably know as a civilian is the pre-deployment training is many months. And then when they get back from a tour, it can be many months before you get your husband or boyfriend or brother or son back. They, they've seen things and they've done things that um, most of us will never, never see. And so the separation is, is, is something that you have to get used to. And I, I, it never gets easier either. And even the, you know, the more senior your husband is, 
you still suffer the same wrench, the same fears that everybody suffers. And it was a particularly, uh, it was a particularly horrible tour. We lost a number of, of boys. And I went to the funerals of those soldiers and I had the honour of meeting the family without knowing very well the, the soldier that had died. But I met mums and dads and grandparents and brothers and sisters or wives. It was incredibly moving that I was, that I was invited to attend a funeral of somebody that my husband had taken to Afghanistan. I didn't know them very well, but I met the family and I saw such raw raw and open mourning and heartache and it will never leave me and I hope I really do hope that I was able to bring a little bit of comfort to those very dark days and I didn't find it what shall I say I wasn't nervous I didn't find it at all uncomfortable I just felt that it was something that I wanted to do Hmm. and I did it with a very open heart and I'm still in touch with with a number of, of the families today. I guess there's a sense of duty that comes with army life, isn't there? But also there's a sense I'm hearing of camaraderie and warmth and, and the wives bring a softening, isn't it, to a very um, otherwise hard life for both the men in the army and the, the causes that they're, they're fighting for. Yes, and it, it is a very hard life. And, you know the mums or the families that are left behind still carry on with day-to-day life but in the back of their minds their loved one is a long way away and they're in a great deal of harm you know and they still have to you know collect children from school or put a, a meal on the table and carry on with normal life with those concerns and worries and reassuring children and uh, it is very difficult and as I say, it doesn't, I never felt a sense of duty to do it. I wanted to do it. And I wanted to do it because I have, I think I have a deep empathy with people and what they're going through. And I knew what I was going through with that being away. And I, I knew that they would be feeling the same. Mm. And so we were really one big family mm. together. It's amazing. It's it's so powerful. And and Zach continued in the army. Many men do come out, particularly after life changing tours and seeing such hardship and strife. But but Zach stayed with it. And, and how has he done in his subsequent career? Are you allowed to say? Yes, he's, he's doing. He's such a humble man, Millie. He's such a humble man. I don't think I've ever met anyone as humble as he is. He's always wanted to be a soldier ever since he was the age of two with his action men, um, (laughs) always wanted to do it, always, without any hesitation. And I have to say, there's been some times when he's thought, you know what, I've had enough. But he always comes back to me and says, do you know what, Sarah, there's more for me to do. There's There's more good that I can do. Without sounding like he's some great person, that is so not Zach. He's had some amazing job offers that on the face of it, you'd think, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, take it. You know, you've done the army bit. Do that for a while. And he's, he's always said to me, the money does not does not inspire me. It doesn't float my boat. It's what I can do that makes the difference to me. And I just couldn't take a job just because they're paying X amount. He loves what he does. He, he doesn't always 
agree with it. He doesn't always enjoy it, but his heart is in the army and I think he will always stay in the army. Sounds like the army are lucky to have him. And what is his role in the army at the moment? He's been very involved in the Defence Review, which has been a very long and hard job for the last two years. He's just been promoted to a major general, which we're all incredibly proud of. Wow. He's going to be taking over as commandant of Sandhurst Military Academy um, next summer and to really mentor the next generation of army officers. And I don't think there's any better person that could do that. He is so genuinely cares for people that to the detriment of himself, to be honest, he always, always puts people before himself. And I've always said to him, sometimes you have to, you have to look after you. Hmm. And he said, one day I will, but not yet. So, <laughs> Well, they're lucky to get him by all accounts. And he was lucky to get you. But I mean, army wife, as we said in the beginning, doesn't just define Sarah. Long before you met Zach, you were referring, paddling your own canoe and you had your own business, which you successfully exited. Tell us a little bit about Sarah, the entrepreneur business lady. Well, to be honest, Millie, that came out of the blue, really, because my education was a little bit um, sparse. I was quite poorly as a young child, so I missed a lot of my basic education being in and out of hospital. And as I grew up and, and uh, matured, when I got to about 10 or 11, it was a blood disorder, not a hugely dangerous one, but it, it meant I was in hospital a while. And I lost a lot of education. And so when I got to the age of 11, I was not far off illiterate. So mum and dad saved up and sent me to a little tiny private school to see if I could catch up. And I did. I remember joining the school and absolutely hating it because I couldn't keep up with the classes. I didn't, I felt like I was a real thicky. But over time, I worked and I worked and I worked. And in in those days, and it's a long time ago now, when you had a test or an exam, they used to put the results up in a list, a ranking list. And when I first started there, I used to be near the bottom. And I thought, I am going to get to near the top. I want to show that I can do this. And um, by that time, I left um, my school. I came out with eight O-levels, as they were called then. But it took so much out of me that I didn't want to then go on to do A-levels or go to uni. I needed a rest. Yeah. And so I had some time off. And very bizarrely, I was a, I don't know whether you know this actually, Millie, but I was a hand and foot model for no, about a year. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre. And I, I went into, you know, the studios and they used my feet and hands on many different adverts from Branston Pickle to Clark's Shoes to, gosh, I can't remember now, it's so long ago, hmm. but I was, I was about 16 or 17. And actually the rate of pay was enormous. But what it it didn't come along very often. So I was thinking, you know, this two hundred pounds a day back in back in those days was a lot of money. Uh, was brilliant, and you know, I could see my feet and my hands on billboards or in magazines, <laughs> and no one knew it was me, which was brilliant. And I got these paychecks. But actually, how often do you need a hand and foot model? Not that often. So I wasn't earning that much money. And I remember mum and dad sitting me down saying, right, you know, you've had probably the best part of a year at this. This is not not going to you know, make your fortune as much as it's great. And it's a good story to tell. And that was very true. And dad said to me, he sat me down and he's always been an incredibly hard worker, dad. And he said, right, you've had a great year. 
now's the time to make a decision. You either get a proper job or you go back to college. And I was thinking, "Mm, I don't really want to do either of those things. But, you know, I wasn't really given a choice. And I ended up going to do a business studies and secretarial course at Macclesfield College. And I did that. I came out with a distinction. I could type like a demon. I could write shorthand. And I also got a bit of business acumen. Not much, I have to say, but I qualified with a distinction. And lo and behold, um, the next week, I got offered a temp job at an advertising agency in Manchester to cover the media department's secretary who was going on annual leave. And I went in there and I did this job and I thought, gosh, this is a great place to work. I love this. (laughs) And after two weeks, the media director said to me, Sarah, would you like to train as a media planner buyer? We'd love you to, to train as a media planner buyer. And I jumped at it. And that was the beginning of my career in media. And it was not planned. It was, it, it just happened. And I think it's a really interesting way, you know, when you say to people or your children now, you know, what are you going to do? How you, what job do you want to do? Sometimes jobs or opportunities just present themselves. And there's a saying that I often say to myself, and, and it's this, it's we often look so long and regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the ones which open for us. Hmm. And I think that's a really true, true thing in life that we we can hanker after something and then we miss all the huge opportunities that are there that just happen. Mm. And I stayed at, um, it was McCann Erickson, a big global advertising agency for nearly eight years. And I I went from a, a very young, naive media planner buyer to an associate director by the time I left. Hmm. And um, I worked really hard and it was a really defining time in my life. I absolutely loved it. It's the hardest I've ever worked. There were some all-nighters when we were pitching for big pieces of business and you'd be exhausted, but gosh, I loved every second. And actually the only reason I left that job was with the breakdown of my marriage. Hmm. Just before I had my son, we did have a break and I thought, you know what? I cannot carry on in this marriage any longer and I cannot stay local. I need to I need to do something radical. And I moved from McCann Erickson in Manchester and I made a new life for myself. I didn't know anybody and I moved to Bath on my own. Wow. Left my family and friends and I moved down to Bath in 1994 oh. and worked for a very small direct marketing agency at the time. And it was a real culture shock because you're going for a big, global, well-known, big, big brand to a local company that nobody really knows apart from the locals. And But they were very successful. And I, I enjoyed it for a couple of years, but it wasn't really me. I stopped learning. I knew it sounds really arrogant, but I knew more. Yes. And I, I wasn't being taught and I wasn't and it felt wrong, mm. but it, it served a purpose and it brought me to Bath and I made a new life here. And I met so many great friends. It was so hard at the times. I didn't know anybody. And I was also grieving my marriage. Um, mm. But my ex-husband then came and joined me and we, we made another go of it. And it was here that he was then diagnosed with cancer and, and I got pregnant with my first son. But 
I see. Yeah. So you, you took the opportunity. Again, there's a theme here of opportunity, isn't there? You know, you, you, you had the opportune moment that you got chatting to Zach on the train. Yes. You had the opportune moment when your father sat you down. You got the opportunity as a temp to progress up and then moving to Bath, you created opportunity. I mean, I think you're quite right. You, you need to spot it. And then once you shut the door on one thing, be prepared to look at an open door. So what happened after you left this company in, in Bath, which you essentially grew out of? Did you then feel, look, you can do more, maybe set up by yourself? Well, interestingly, we we, we talked about it. There was, there was um, me and another colleague. And I have to mention this person because actually without him, None of what I'm about to say would have happened. So Patrick Sargent, who is a dear, dear friend, always had an entrepreneurial gift. He would probably absolutely deny that, but it's so obvious. And if there's one person people love, it's Patrick. There's not one person I've ever met that doesn't want to spend 100 hours a day with him. And I worked with Patrick for two years. And I remember him saying to me once, you know, would you ever be interested if we set up on our own? And I thought, oh, yeah, 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 that'd be great. You know, kind of pie in the sky thinking when you've had a glass of wine and you never think it's going to happen. Well, I didn't. Um, and so when I left this company in Bath, I decided to take three months off and I went to stay with my friend in San Francisco. And I just wanted a complete break and to do something completely different and think about what I wanted to do. And I had three months in San Francisco, which was brilliant. But lo and behold, to literally two weeks before I was due to come home, I developed an autoimmune disease and it absolutely floored me. And I had to come home and I was admitted to hospital and they treated me. And I was treated for about three or four years. And it was only when I got pregnant with my first son that the autoimmune disease sorted itself out. Um, I never thought I'd get rid of it, but I did. And I bless Max. Um, I don't know how he did it, but him growing inside me righted my ailing body and touch wood, I've not been plagued with it since. So when Patrick actually rang me and said, look, I'm thinking of starting up my own business. Are you interested? I was kind of battling with this autoimmune disease. And I said to him, I've got to be completely honest with you. I'm not too good at the moment. I would love to do it. I'm in, but you need to know that I'm struggling with my health. And if you want me to come with you, I can, I, I'll do four days, but I need a day just to sort myself out and be able to just rest. And bless him, he agreed to that. And we set up Response One Direct Marketing in September 1998. The three of us, and there was another lovely, lovely chap called Tim, and the three of us, the three amigos, Patrick, Tim, and I, we set off on this journey, which was amazing. And my lovely, lovely sister, Anna, also joined us. And she she was an absolute sweetheart. She did all the, the hardship of the initial setup of Response One in London, sleeping on couches, visiting clients. You know, we were running a business with no income coming in. But by God, we, we worked hard and we had some fun and we got our first offices in Bath. And we were so proud of them. And uh, it, it was at the top floor of Railway Place opposite the, the station at the moment. We took a tiny little area and it just looked so, so professional and so posh. 
and hmm. not one of us knew how to do accounts. So we, we, we were paying suppliers sometimes twice and then they'd ring up and go, we've never had a company that's paid us twice. Um, <laughs> so we're going to send a check back. But it wasn't long before we realized we've got a success story on our hands. And we took on a, a part-time bookkeeper who later became our financial director. And she's since become a very, very best friend uh, of mine. And um, and we went from three of us to up to 95 of us. Wow. And it was an incredible success. We had a great business some great, great clients. We had some amazing fun times. We had some blooming hard times, but overall it was great. Now it was set on the basis that the company's whole ethos was data. Hmm. And my background was media. And I was used to, um, you know, booking lovely full page color ads in glossy magazines and booking poster sites wherever they were needed and booking radio um, campaigns and TV campaigns and all the rest of it. And so data was always a bit of an enigma to me. Mm. And I was going to tell you that my authenticity within that company, I absolutely loved the people. I loved the clients, most of them. I loved, you know, the, the whole interaction with the staff, but I never felt never, never felt comfortable with buying data and manipulating it in the way that Patrick and Tim and Anna could. And so I never felt 100% at home. And so when I met Zach and I decided to have a baby, I thought it was time for me to exit the business and, and to let them all get on with it. And I did. I exited it very successfully. And they, they, they paid, they bought me out of the business. And I went on to have Seb and I was at home and I was an army wife. And unfortunately, if, you, if everyone remembers 2008, it was a bit of a recession and a bit of a scary time. And I think Patrick, Tim and Nicola and Anna did me very well and very proud to buy me out at that time because it could have quite easily been a, a disaster for them. Mm. But they looked after me mm. and then they went on stronger and stronger and stronger and they sold the company in 2011 for a lot of money and they all did very well. And there's not one day that I regret not being there for that. Mm. I'm just so happy that they, they, they did it and I'm, I'm immensely proud of them all. Well, I think it's a huge achievement to take an idea from nothing to a startup and then an exit, a successful big business. As a fellow entrepreneur, I can attest to that. And all that you've told us there about the hard work, the fun, the graft, you have to roll up your sleeves, do the bookkeeping, even if you're a doctor or a medic in a startup, we have to do that. Mm. Um, but importantly, you have your best day and indeed your worst day in the one day I find as an entrepreneur. So I'm sure you had that those thoughts as well as you went along. Those words are so true, Millie. So true. You can have your best day and your worst day within an hour of the same day. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you can. And it's important to know when to get out and when it's right for you. And I think there's many founders who feel, OK, I've done this. I've been successful at it, but there's something else out there for, for me. And you articulated yeah. that with your own authentic journey, which then took you on to a more creative side of you, Sarah, when you started renovating houses and putting your design flourish and magic, including my kitchen, might I add, that you did <laughs> with my youngest, my oldest daughter. Well, do you know, I've, I've always loved, I've always loved houses. I've always loved the interiors. And 
I think, oh my goodness, if I could have my time again and I had half an inkling of a skill at drawing, I know exactly what I would do. What would you do? Well, I would I would be a designer. I would maybe um, not quite an architect and not an interior designer. I think it'd be lovely to do a mix of both of those things, but on a small scale for people. Mm. I, I'm not interested in the big, massive projects. But, you know, people like me who maybe want to just do an ex- a lovely, beautiful extension, but they also want the inside doing. Mm. that is what I would love to do. But my missing my missing ingredient and my missing skill is to be able to put down what I've got in my head onto paper. And I know what I want it to look like. So I can do it for myself and I can do it when people describe what they want. But if I wanted to be able to show somebody what's in my head, that's where my missing skill is. I, God, I wish I could do it. You have to just work with somebody who has that skill. Yes, I do. I do. I would. And you and I had planned a little project, didn't we? Um, Which subsequently went ahead. We were thinking about designing gowns for patients. And um, I remember we had a meeting and we were, I had had this idea for quite some time and I, you and I were going to work on it. And I remember it was just a, a germ of an idea we've since developed a gown. It's called Iona Gowns. It's it's under review for a patent at the moment. It's a gown that patients will own. It will facilitate doctors and clinicians to examine patients without undressing them and preserve the dignity and also be of a sustainable fabric and potentially have some antibacterial properties. But that day that we started talking about it, you said, well, look, we'll have the next meeting, but I need to just go home. I have to have a quick scan. I've got back pain. And I remember you sent me a picture of you in this horrible traditional gown that every patient is exposed to <laughs> yes and that exposes every part of them that it doesn't want to be exposed it does indeed yes mm-hmm. without you knowing because it's always at the back and your bottom's hanging out yes yeah which is yes. a bugbear of mine for my poor patients <laughs> and um and you called me after the scan and you said look I'm sorry, but I've discovered that they've told me there's a mass and it was on a Friday afternoon, wasn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm not your doctor, which is why we're having this very open conversation. But I remember you called me and um, there was a life changing moment. Yet another one, Sarah, do you want to tell me what you felt at that moment or what was going through your head when you made that call to me? I do, because I remember it so well. And there's, there's so much coming into my head at this very minute, because actually without you, as a friend, I probably wouldn't be here today. And I don't say that lightly because I rang you knowing you were medical and knowing it was a Friday at quarter to five. And I remember coming out of the um, the ultrasound and the consultant had said to me, after an hour and a half of prodding and poking and taking measurements and not saying anything, I knew by, by the look on his face that, that something wasn't right. And I rang you immediately afterwards and I said I wasn't sure what to do. And um, fast forward just a few days and I was in hospital having a major operation. And I'd been diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. Mm. And yes, it was life changing and a huge shock because my whole family have had cancer, actually, and they're all still here. And luckily, you know, my dad had kidney cancer had his kidney and spleen out, but needed no further treatment. My mum had a bilateral mastectomy, but didn't need chemo. And it was only three months prior that my sister had a mastectomy for early stage breast cancer. And I was nursing her through that when 
when my world fell apart. And to be diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer, and we all probably realise that ovarian cancer has an absolutely horrendous prognosis. And um, it did change my life. And I did have to have intensive chemotherapy. And just a few months after that scan, it was Christmas Day, and I had the baldest of heads, the shiniest of heads, and my whole family bought fake bald heads and all put them on round the Christmas dinner table and we all laughed oh, together. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, we've got pictures of us all with bald heads and, uh, mm. you know, I, I haven't lost my sense of humour. There's been moments where, you know, we've all cried together, obviously, but we have an amazing sense of humour as a family. And I have to say, without my mum by my side at the moment who's enabled, you know, Max and Seb to go back off to uni and school and my husband to carry on working. She has become mum, best friend, major carer, the best nurse in the world and is enabling me to take another another blast of chemotherapy, which I start in a week and a half. And it will be my fourth lot in three years. And I'm still here and I'm still smiling and talking to you. And, you know, life life is pretty amazing, isn't it? It's a juxtaposition of good and bad every day of the week. And whether you've got cancer or not got cancer and you've got all your health, it's all relative, I think. And, you know, we all have we all have our worries and our demands on our time and we all have the good parts and that's life. Mm, and I think everybody you know, who's had cancer touch their lives, deals with it in a different way. And I, I feel somewhat qualified to speak on this because my own daughter had cancer. And in fact, you were very supportive to me when Grace went through her journey. But not everybody can be so positive, so strong at all times in their journey. And I know you've had some dark moments. And yes, you have the fun, you've got the family, the friendships to fall back on. But, you know, things haven't been easy for you either, particularly making difficult decisions when it comes to, you know, do this treatment or else. Yeah. I mean, how do you cope with decisions like that? Well, each each treatment that you're faced with, I think you, you go into your first lot of chemo thinking, yeah, give it, give me, give it everything, give it everything you've got. I'm going to I am going to beat this. And um and actually, you, when you relapse, if you relapse, it's probably harder than your first diagnosis. But with each relapse or with each setback, you actually get stronger. It's it's the most bizarre, bizarre situation. And you kind of think, gosh, it can't get much worse than this. And then the next time you relapse, it does. But you have got something inside that's, that's come from the previous experience of a letdown or a setback. And it just keeps you going. And I know people say to me, and I know people say to other cancer patients, you're an inspiration, you're so brave, how do you do it? I don't know actually how we do it. I don't think we have a choice really. And I think sometimes when things happen to you in life, whether it's uh, the sudden loss of a child or the sudden breakdown of a relationship or whatever it is, when it happens to you, you do have a choice. You can crumble or you can carry on going. And, and it's okay to crumble at times. And I have. I, I have absolutely crumbled. And I've not been able to see the lightness for a while. But then it does come back. And I think you've always got to hold on to that hope and knowledge that it will. However dark it gets, you will see the sunshine again. 
And it's a bit like a storm going over. When the clouds come and they're really dark, you think, my goodness, I can't imagine my garden in the sunshine again. But the next day it can be sunny. And literally life can be like that. And you've just got to hold tight and know that you will be okay and it will be, the sun will come out, regardless of your prognosis, regardless of how poorly you feel. There will be moments in that day where it's okay. And that's what keeps you going. I think that's incredible. And I hope people listening take that and cherish it and it gives them courage, hope, inspiration in all of the journeys that many people who might be listening are going through because it is not easy and you've done amazingly well. And we don't talk about battling and fighting because they're sort of um, not good terms. This is living with something, isn't it? It is actually. It is living with cancer and I will be living with cancer all the rest of my life, however long that may be. And I've accepted that. And actually, cancer is a part of your body. It's it's not this alien that's come in. It's something that's happened inside. And as much as it, it's unfair or it can be painful or it can be the darkest of days, there's so many people who who are struggling and living with cancer or living with the after effects of a stroke or a, another disease. And life can be really hard. And what it's taught me, if it's taught me anything, is the true, true value of of your health and the support around you. And, you know, I, I could not have got through the last three years without my family and friends. Absolutely couldn't because they they have got me through. My body's got me through. But when when the tears come or when you're feeling poorly or when you're feeling that that loss of hope or the the, the thunderclouds come over it only takes the smallest of things whether it's you know a cup of tea with somebody or somebody to just say I'm here with you I'm here with you and I'm uh, you know I might be down the road I might be 100 miles away but I'm with you Mm. and I I so appreciate that Well, we're coming back to full circle really here because what you've articulated is your friends and family help you feel whole, help you get through it. Cancer doesn't define you. And and really your true authentic self is not cancer. It's not being an entrepreneur. It's not being the army wife. It's not being the mother. It's being you and you and how you respond to all of these different events, the opportunities, the downtimes, the good times, the challenges, the duties and the roles that we take on in our life. And You know, I know I asked you that really, really hard question at the very beginning, but I think you've sort of answered it during the course of this last half hour or so that the true authentic Sarah is a whole person with no one thing defining her. No, no. And, and, you know, each minute or each hour that that can change one minute, you know, it could be I'm mum. The next could be I'm an army wife. And, And the next minute it can be I'm your friend. But depending on where you're at in your heart at any one particular time, it, it, those, those little lights shine on those facets of you. And, and that's what makes the person, Sarah, the essence of Sarah, really. Mm. 
Well, I'm so glad that I know you, Sarah, and you certainly bring a, a light to my light anytime um, I meet you, chat to you. And I want to thank you so much for giving up your time today and talking about such deeply personal issues to help other people, help yourself and, and um, um, of huge interest to so many people, I think. So thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Well, I, I would like to thank you, Millie, because I don't feel that I've achieved any anything near some of your other guests. I've listened to your podcasts and I absolutely love them. And it's usually when I'm having a bath and nobody's disturbing me and I put them on <laughs> and I just sit back and listen. And I and I love them. And I, I you know, there's the particular favourite of mine is Charlotte. Oh, yes. My first little girl, only 17. Oh. She's an utter amazing. Woman. Oh, my goodness. And I listen to her and I think, what a life you've got ahead of you and what you can do. Mm. And also, actually, Donald, Donald Summit again. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I absolutely am in awe. And I just think about what I've done. And I, I, um, I'm just honoured that you've asked me. And, and I hope somebody somewhere gets some pleasure from it. And I, I am so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to all my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I have and feel inspired by Sarah's story. And tune in next week when we'll have the pleasure of talking to another lovely colleague of mine, Dr. Boone Lim, who's recently published a book on the heart. And it's it's a really, really interesting read. And um, we're going to be reviewing that. It's recently out by Penguin. And it's all about how lifestyle can change your heart and can improve your outcomes. And it's a fascinating read. And as always, please feel free to leave a, a review on Apple Podcasts or if you'd like to drop us a line, feel free to do so and get in touch with us on hello at livelongwiththepodcast.com. Thank you so much. Bye for now.